Hi, welcome to this week's Science of Fiction. As ever, I'm joined by Andy Holding. Hello. And this week, our special guest returning after uh, a few, um, about eight months is James Grime. Hi. Uh, so, James, you're the resident tamed mathematician at the Enigma Project. That's right. Yes, that's right. So, um, what, does, what does that involve? So, what I do is I spend my time travelling the UK and the world, and I show off an Enigma machine. It's better than proper work. Sounds about right. Um, so this week, uh, James is joining us to talk about, well, mainly the stereotype of the uh, tortured genius in fiction yeah. uh, and, and other kind of angles on geniuses. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Yeah. OK, well, we'll send in what you want to send in. If you've got any questions, any comments through the web player or through the email address at studio at camfm.co.uk or whatever other way you have. Telepathy. We'll go with that this morning. <laughs> plus two equals five by a small band you may have heard of called Radiohead. So James, can two plus two equals five? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, for large values of two. Yeah, we can <laughs> do that. Uh, so we were talking about this, weren't we, uh, during the record, uh, because it sounds like an obvious thing, two plus two, well, obviously it doesn't equal five, we know that. Right. Uh, but it sounds like an obvious question, but uh, how much can we assume? And this was uh, the question that they had at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, they, a guy called Bertrand Russell and others uh, were interested in uh, formalising mathematics and the basic truths of mathematics and building everything else from that. And they wanted uh, the fewest number of these basic truths, axioms as possible. Mm -hmm. And then they can build everything else 
from that. Uh, so uh, it resulted in this major work called, um, if I get it right, Principia Mathematica. I hope I haven't confused that with Newton's book. I always get those two confused. I thought that was Newton's book. But maybe yeah, I always get them confused because <laughs> they sound the same. Uh, I'll think about that. Uh, so uh, they worked out in this book that 1 plus 1 equals 2. Yep. It does sound obvious, but that result came on page, I think, 83 of volume 2. After defining many, many hundreds of pages of pure set theory. Yes, that's right. That's it. Yeah, that's what they had to do before they could get to 1 plus 1 equals 2. And I think it, uh, after the results, he says uh, that this result is occasionally useful. <laughs> I think that's what he says. So from 1 plus 1 equals 2, is it quite easy to then prove that 2 plus 2 equals 5? Yeah. Or did that require another 10 volumes? And, and so that's what they were trying to build up. Yeah, they were trying to build up that, you know, there is, uh, there is you can get onto the ladder, there is a 1, you know, the first rung of the ladder. And then like induction, you can then you move up to the next, you can add 1 and move on to the next integer. You make things really complicated, you mathematicians. <laughs> well, what's wrong with that? I go into my fridge and I count. <laughs> I can't cope with decimals. Well, well, what to be fair, we, we spent 2,000 years going, you know, or, or if not longer, you know, just basically assuming yes. that 1 plus 1 equals 2. And then we thought, well, maybe, hang on. Maybe we should check. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And by formalising this, if you ever get an infinite fridge, then you'll still be able to um, reason about its con contents using set theory. There you go. You see, you didn't think of that, though, did you? No. Yeah, and now you're going to explain to me how the square root of minus one relates to my fridge. <laughs> well, we can do that later. We'll do All that right. later. Okay, so the first movie you saw one talk about, first torture genius, as it were, was, um, well, the genius wasn't, but the movie was Good Will Hunting. Yeah, so uh, this is, if you talk about mathematics... Uh, this is the film that everyone will mention. It's one of the big films about the topic of mathematics. Uh, so shall we have a little rundown of the plot? You, you will have to remind me because it's been a little while for yeah, me. Yeah, OK. So um, Goodwill Hunting, and that is his full name, uh, is a janitor in a well, university sweeping the floors. And the professor, the mathematics professor, has put up a problem on the blackboard in the corridor. And they make a big deal of it. It's, oh, it took... It took us two years to solve this problem, and I've, I've put it up in the corridor. And uh, and then Goodwill Hunting goes away, and he thinks about it, and he he solves the answer. And uh, uh, the professor sees him; he chases him down the corridor. He hides away; he doesn't want to be known. Uh, in the end, they find him, they capture him, and they, the yeah, they tame him. And then uh, he's he is a undiscovered uh, mathematical genius. You know, he's he's a um, a guy with from a, a tough background. Uh, he's he. They ask him to see a psychologist because of his emotional problems, uh, but he's also a brilliant mathematician. And the professor in the film is very keen on uh, cultivating that talent that he has. Uh, so what I'm interested in is uh, who was the real good Will Hunting, and what what is this based on? Uh, so there are a few stories that I can tell. Uh, so this, I want to tell this one. Okay, this one's great. I'll look at <laughs> it. All right. So first of all, I'm going to start with a, a, a legend, the legend of the, the student who solved the unsolvable problem. I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, but uh, the story goes that a, a student uh, uh, turned up late for his exam. Right. Obviously, he spent all night revising. Yeah. 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 And so turned up late for his exam, rushed in, and uh, wrote the questions for the exam down from off the board and started to solve them. Uh, the last one seemed to be particularly difficult, but you know he worked on it and solved it before the end of the exam and handed it in. He gets a phone call that night from his professor saying, you are only meant to answer the first few questions. The last one was an example of an unsolved problem, which you've just solved. Un oh. Under exam conditions. Yeah. <laughs> now the thing is, what's really, so great story. What's really great about this story is, it's true. So <laughs> this is why this is this is this this was based on uh, something that happened to a, a mathematician called George Danzig. It wasn't an exam. It was he went to a lecture and turned up late, and he wrote the questions down from off the board, and he thought it was the homework. So he he thought he had really hard homework that week. Yeah, and that's right. He handed it in, saying it, it seemed to be particularly difficult this this week's homework, and the professor uh, just said, "Oh, just throw it on my desk." And it was six weeks later, and this is the true story. This is how uh, George Danzig tells it. It was six weeks later, uh, the professor wakes him up, him and his wife, on a Sunday morning, banging on the door. And he comes down, he says, can I write an introduction to your paper? 
says the professor. And George Danzig says, what, what paper's that then? <laughs> and those, those two problems you've solved were unsolved statistical problems. And, oh, oh I hate him. I, <laughs> I, I, I wish I'd achieved something like that, to my degree. I kind of, you know, got to the end of it, got to one. And I was quite proud of that. I didn't solve any unsolved <laughs> problems. I didn't invent anything. I didn't discover anything. Well, I, I tell you what I really hate about this. So, so the next year, uh, George Danzig had to come up with his PhD topic. And his supervisor said, oh, just put those two problems in a binder and we'll call that your thesis. But of course he solved something else. In, in fairness, he kind of should get a PhD for that, though. Yeah, but yeah, I think... I mean, there's have, a lot of worse PhDs out there. I think you have to go through a pain, the pain of a PhD to appreciate <laughs> how much I hate him. Uh, maybe, I, maybe, maybe, maybe he went through the, the pain in, that, in those three nights, you know? He just condensed it all down. As, as I, I've had a PhD. I, as well, I, I, I know the pain. I, <laughs> I, I'm aware of it. Um, I did an experimental PhD, which means we have the pain of things not doing what they're meant to do. Say that again. In, in science doesn't work during a PhD. There's a law that when you get into a PhD, if you're doing an experimental one, science ceases for four years. It's a well-known. You live in a bubble where you do something. It's known to work, and it doesn't work. This this must be a, a, a science PhD phenomenon. It it's is. Not, it doesn't happen in mathematics, I think. Ma- maths doesn't stop working ever, but experimental <laughs> science. You can you can do a reaction. It's been documented. It, it You get green when you're meant to get blue. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Because uh, all chemistry is just making colours. No, well, fortunately, in maths, then, uh, one, pop- one plus one continues to equal two. Hooray. Until it stops. Uh, so so, any- so and- this, yeah, so we, have this, so we have this story, very nice story, and it is a true story, and it was a, quite a famous story. There's, there was a pastor who used it as a, in his sermons as an example of how naivety helped him solve a problem that would block other people from solving it. And That's quite rude. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously anyone who's undergraduate has to be naive. Um, well, something like that, something along those lines. So do you have any other favourite um, mathematician prodigies? Well, so, so yeah, the point of that story was it kind of it's kind of similar to the film of, of Will Hunting solving this problem on a blackboard. Uh, but uh, my other candidates uh, for Will Hunting uh, are, is a man called Walter Pitt, uh, who was a child prodigy. And now uh, there is a story that I think at the age of 12, he wrote to Bertrand Russell. Now we've talked about this book. I couldn't remember its name, Principia Mathematica, or one of the other names. Or similar. Or similar. Uh, so he wrote to Bertrand Russell uh, with notes on this book at the age of 12. Uh, he wrote to him and... See, if a kid did that to me, I just think they're a really... You know that exactly. really annoying, talkative kid. Exactly. Exactly. So instead of telling where to go... Bertrand Russell uh, actually invited this uh, kid, Walter Pitt, uh, to the UK. Uh, but Walter Pitt, he, he couldn't do that. He, he was too young to do that. He had uh, to learn his spellings. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, but uh, at the age of 15, he ran away from home uh, because his family did not support his intellectual endeavours. And so he ran away to the University of Chicago where he went to live. So I guess at this time, beginning of the 20th century, a 15-year-old kid can just run away from home and live at the University of Chicago. No problem. And he just lived in the university? Or? Yeah, that's, that's, how it's, that's how it's told. Uh, so he was just living around the, the University of Chicago. He, walk, you know, he walks into one of the professor's office with a, an annotated book. And, uh, and then he walks out again without telling him who he is. And this professor has to now find this this young man who's just annotated his textbook without knowing who he is. Uh, He finds him homeless. Uh, He gets him a job as a janitor at MIT, I think, or at the University University of Chicago. And again, this all has parallels to... uh, The the character of Will Hunting, who is the janitor. Again, this is another character with emotional problems... uh, his his two best friends had a falling out, and he couldn't cope with that, and he he ended up just losing all interest in maths and drinking himself to death, because he was such a sensitive soul, uh, and he even he even burnt his his manuscript of his latest work, which is something that happens in Goodwill Hunting as well, and has ha- and has happened to all all manner of artists and um, and yeah, geniuses so throughout history. This is this is the idea of this tortured genius uh, obviously a child prodigy uh, but uh, with emotional problems uh, what I am interested in if, is if anyone can suggest a genius in fiction who's well adjusted who has no problem you know who's a genius not a bad guy 
Not Lex Luthor. Okay, have, have you seen Iron Man? Yes, yeah. Because, I mean, there are so, problems there. I'm not saying he's perfect. <laughs> yeah. But he's the good guy. He's not Lex yeah, Luthor. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. I'll take that. Yeah, so I will take Tony Stark. Uh, but Other I problems. Tr- <laughs> I, ra- I racked my brain trying to think of a genius in fiction that wasn't suffering from emotional problems. I mean, Tony Stark was an alcoholic. Oh, there's many things wrong. Oh, and a womanizer, <laughs> I think, is implied, if not clear. Uh, so I, I would be interested in a well-adjusted uh, genius in fiction. So I guess this, this is one of these unsolved problems. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is, yeah. May- a Millennium Prize, perhaps. <laughs> is it, but this is a problem with writing fiction, isn't it? You want an interesting character. And genius that is well-adjusted, would it, what would it do? Ro- release a few papers? Maybe, yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. So maybe, maybe that's why they don't have them. Maybe that's just not interesting enough. Mm-hmm. But you have, you have good guys that don't have emotional problems in you know in fiction and they're they're heroes they're the main character but it's in, in you know it's a bit like the person on the deck in Star Trek you never know who they are they're probably the genius you know they're the best and brightest in Starfleet they're there but they don't do much they're, now, they're, they're, now they're working got, really hard now you've got me thinking of Wesley <laughs> so <laughs> no. it's, it's Wesley the only example we can think of of a well adjusted can, can we can <laughs> so we just end name, it right there I, I was thinking of a nameless person in the background not Wesley Crusher um <laughs> Who right. um, the actor's name? Will, Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton. A strange example of going on to become famous. He's brilliant, isn't he? He's yeah. brilliant. I love him. Just doing cameos in random geek things. It's, it's quite he's brilliant. Yeah, he's amazing that he's he's turned it around. He he turned his reputation around from uh, portraying a annoying kid who portrayed a hated character into a great cult figure well, he, in the geek world. And the problem with that character was because he could do everything. And yeah. it, it was just ridiculous. And I think they even, everyone who worked on it said it just yeah. became stupid. Yeah, yeah, and saving the ship. And he shouldn't have been there in the first place, and he, he shouldn't have been driving the ship. <laughs> <laughs> shouldn't they have laws against these kind of things? Yeah, it's, it's child, I'm sure they have child labour laws in the 24th century. It's meant to be a utopia. Right. And if you've, got, you've got a 13-year-old kid driving the spaceship. Surely that's not allowed. It's utopia. Everyone's allowed to do what they want. Yeah, OK, so, yeah, hey. And... <laughs> uh, so, would you like another another candidate? Yes, yeah, let's go. Right. Let's go. All right. So that was my Walter Pitt uh, candidate. Similar, he was a janitor, had some similar problems. Uh, my other candidate is a, a man called William Sidus. Now, he was a famous child prodigy at the time. This is early 20th century. Um, do you know the 10% myth? The the uh, we use 10% of our oh, brains. Yeah. It was him. That was oh. him. This is who I'm talking about. Okay, so he came up with that. And uh, now. As a, as a young child, again, 12 years old, he gave a, a lecture to the maths department uh, at Harvard uh, on about oh, f- uh, four-dimensional bodies, a mathematical thing. And he was predicted to become a great mathematician uh, as a young man. And it was very stressful because he was a famous child prodigy, poor kid. Yeah, he graduated from Harvard at 16, so uh, and he, d- he didn't have much of a childhood. Uh, as a young man... Um, he got himself into trouble. Um, he got himself arrested at a, a communist rally uh, because he was holding the flag. <laughs> he was holding the red <laughs> flag. Do it properly. If you can yeah. do it. So he was arrested uh, as the ling- uh, ringleader of, of the uh, rally. And so he was arrested. Part of his bail was to see a psychologist and to get a job in the labs at MIT. Again, this is similar to the Will Hunting story because they asked him to see a psychiatrist and uh, to work with this yep. mathematician. Uh, the psychologist that Will Sidus had to see was his own father. That, that's, that mm. sounds wrong. Yes, it does sound wrong. Is that typically discouraged in Yeah, it sounds, it sounds wrong. And he, his father put Will into a, a private asylum for a year. Classy. Yeah, uh, which uh, Will described later as mental torture, a year of mental torture. Uh, so when he came out, it, it pretty much sounds like a shadow of his former self. Uh, so he swore off mathematics and he went into clerical work, office work, sort of just pretty low level stuff, um, working the adding machines, which he quite enjoyed. So he went from this great mathematician, or he was promised to be a great mathematician, to uh, uh, anonymous jobs working the calculators. 
And yet, and yet, this was something which which didn't drive him to these extremes of emotion, and he he could find his find well, find his way to, so, do, to 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 do his work and keep a low profile. And so, yeah, I guess so. In the end, I guess some people would say that he that he must have had some sort of emotional problems because this is where he ended up. Hmm. Uh, he may not agree with that. And there was this terrible hatchet job in the New York Times, I think. Uh, they went. It was a "Where are they now?" piece. Right, so this child prodigy, where is he now? And they 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 did a piece on him about this. You know, he's, he just works in a lowly clerical stuff, you know, job, and he he's he's giving lectures to hippies about uh, native Indians, and this is what he was doing at the time. And uh, he, I think, he sued. He sued because some of the things that they said in this this paper or in this article was like they gave, they quoted him saying that the idea of doing maths again made him sick made him physically sick which sounds like a great quote yeah yeah look at it so he went from being the child genius and now the even the thought of doing maths again makes him physically sick what a great story and he completely denied that so he doesn't have he just doesn't enjoy it well, that's that seems to be what happened um i wish you see i kind of wish that the 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 article that they wrote in the New York Times was true because it was poetic. Yeah, that's mining for a story that wasn't there. Yeah, and that that may be true. Uh, so he denied the whole thing, uh, and and again he died young, but he died from um, I think he had a, a brain aneurysm. Uh, but this would be another candidate for Goodwill Hunting because uh, Matt Damon was also a Harvard student, uh, so the, he would have heard of this story. Yeah, because it was a famous. Harvard ex, ex student uh, there was a biography of this William Sidus going around at the time so this may have well been a inspiration for uh, the character of Goodwill Hunting as, as Matt Damon told us who the inspiration was no, no there's no, no official word on that and that's on purpose presumably um, I guess so. I get the only the only official one we can talk about is in the film they talk about uh, Ramanujan yeah, the Indian. Yeah, okay, we call. For people who don't know, we probably should explain. Yeah, so so let's let's do Ramanujan now. So this is what they talk about in the film. Uh, Ramanujan was uh, an Indian mathematician. He again had doing. He was doing lowly clerical work, office work. Uh, he had to drop out of college because he was so obsessed with his maths that he actually was failing all his other subjects. Uh, so he had no tuition no real mathematical education he had a couple of textbooks that's all he had and from that he had made a series of rediscoveries mathematical rediscoveries and he sent these to uh, Cambridge mathematicians including uh, a man called Hardy who recognized his genius and this is now we're talking real genius this is a guy who has rediscovered all these mathematical results without so, but education. The sad thing is that if he had just read, had access to the books, they would have been there for him to find. Yeah, that's right. They would have been there for him to find, but but without them, it's a re it's really impressive to do it at all. Uh, so this this was recognised. He was invited over to Cambridge, uh, where he lived. This is around about the war, First World War. Uh, so he lived here. Uh, he made a, a number of, it, they say it's like nearly 4,000 results he had, mathematical results. Yeah, this isn't counting birds. And now he has access to um, the materials he needs. They're not rediscoveries yeah. of existing results. These are. Well, this is, this is the interesting thing. Uh, um, Hardy believed that if he had been caught and tamed, uh, as a younger man, why do we keep treating this is actual, this is an actual quote this time <laughs> okay this is an actual this is this is a hardy's words if Ramanujan had been caught and tamed, he said uh, as a younger man, uh, you see the ages between eighteen and twenty five he says are critical years in a mathematician's career okay, so I've had it yeah, exactly, so have I yeah, we all have. Uh, but if he can be caught and tamed at a younger age, he would have discovered more that was of greater importance. Mm. Uh, and that was something that he was very concerned about, Hardy. And it reflects the relationship between Will Hunting in the film and the professor 
in the film. The professor is very concerned with Will Hunting's career. So trying to get him in there as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, and I think this this relationship between Ramanujan and Hardy uh, really shows what's, what the theme of the film is. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's very interesting. And that makes it uh, a very mature script from Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They, they did win an Oscar yeah. for their screenplay. And for a couple of young actors, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, it's a very mature script, very interesting. Um, but like we said, I'm not sure who the true inspirations were. But these well, are the likely candidates. Well, it's quite possible that it was all of them. Could have been all of them, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and it didn't have to be a mathematical genius. Their first thought was a, phys- a physics genius. Yeah. Uh, but they were advised to write it as a mathematical genius, being that's, that's what someone could do in isolation. Someone with talent but without training and no, and no equipment beyond pen and paper. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So with pen and paper alone, that would be more believable, more possible. So there's plenty of geniuses to think about, so send in any ideas you may have. Uh, but we're going to move on after the next track onto how to get rich quick with maths. Okay. <laughs>
So that was Time to Pretend by MGMT, or Management, I believe. I guess that's the idea. So we, we had uh, one suggestion for how to get rich quickly with maths uh, during the break. Apparently, the suggestion is um, use a pen to add a few extra digits onto your total balance in your bank statement. Well, they might be able to uh, work that out. Uh, there's, there's a fascinating thing. I don't want to uh, derail it, but there's a fascinating go thing. Go for it. Just go for oh, it. Oh, I'll derail. Have you ever heard of Benford's Law? Oh, yes, I have. It's brilliant. I won't spoil it. I don't uh, use yeah, so, uh, so Benford's Law, and it's a way that they use uh, to work out if someone has fiddled their books. Because... Have you heard of, of this? This, this, this? So this is the the phenomenon where the um, the number of the number of numbers which start with a one is yeah. higher than the number of numbers that start with two, <laughs> and so on. Um, in yeah. basically any um, set of numbers conforming to some rules. Yeah. So you may think, you know, how many numbers start with the number one? And you may think that well, if we're talking about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, so it'd be one ninth of numbers start with the number one. And that's not true. About 30% of numbers start with the number one. But only one. certain numbers. It's only certain data. It is certain data. So it's not random numbers. It's not like phone numbers. Or if you, you know... You they page, only start with naught. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, or page books, you know, um, uh, page numbers from books or, or something like that. But if you took a newspaper and if you circle all the numbers on the front page of your newspaper, take the Financial Times with all the data on it. Which has many numbers. Yeah. And circle, so circle every number and count the number of ones, and it'll the be number about 30%. Of numbers starting with one. Yeah. yeah. Numbers starting with one. Yeah. It'll be about 30%, mm. uh, and not one ninth, 11%. So, so, so one example of somewhere I, I heard about this being used was in um, checking for electoral fraud. Uh, by looking at the um, the number of votes for different candidates in different regions and comparing the distribution of the leading numbers mm-hmm. to the to the, the graph predicted by ben- Benford's law, and you yeah. can you can use that to, to not prove that electoral fraud has taken place, but suggest that maybe something's something's yeah. amiss. But I have derailed it. It's, it's fascinating stuff. But no, it's, it's a great rule. And yeah. I, I tried on some bills once, and they all came out as breaking the rule. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> um, which is worrying. It's, um, <laughs> but um, rather than mention the company name and find myself in court, uh, I'll move swiftly on. So yeah, so 21, a movie about a bunch of mm. MIT gamblers, basically comes from a book, um, Bringing Down the House. So it's a way of beating the house, winning at gambling. Yes. So we can make lots of money this way. Yes. Yes. Just yeah, so, let's do so it. How, Why are we here? Right, let's go. No, so how do we do this? I mean, not that I'm encouraging so, people to So gamble. in 21, they were using uh, card counting. Uh, so you have uh, high cards, which are your picture cards. I think ace counts as a high card then. And you, you score plus one. Each time you see a high card, you count in your head plus one. Every time you see a low card, so two, 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 three, four, five, something like that, you subtract one. And your score, that you're keeping a tally in your head, the score will help you work out what has been used in the past, so what is left remaining in the deck. So you don't have to memorise the entire deck? No, you don't. And that, so, 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 so this, this allows you to track when the deck is in a, is in, is in a likely state for you to be able to yeah. hit 21? Yeah, so if you've had lots of high cards coming out, you'll know you are due some low cards to right. come out. Which is different from what people often think about statistics, where if I flip a yeah. one pound coin 20 times well, mm. and it gets heads everyone goes oh but it must now do a tails yeah so the, and the difference is so what's what they used to do and what they they try now well they, what they've changed to stop this is they used to have a deck of cards so yes if you have lots of the high cards coming out first you are due the low cards to come at the bottom of the deck yeah and so to stop this the casinos started using four decks of cards and they would just shuffle them together four decks and and now I think they have some sort of rolling, changing packs. Or yeah, yeah, and they they just they're trying to stop this card counting. Interestingly, trick. though, the problem is that in the move comes up when looking at sort of synopsis of what's happened now in casinos is that because they can't keep shuffling, can't keep changing the pack because mm. the people who aren't card counting want to play quickly, and they're actually the people who are giving them money. Right. So it's this balance between people milking it and your customer. And. The there was so there's been a big problem with this. The the casinos really don't like these guys, and so these guys tend to be. We're talking about sort of the geniuses and the mathematical geniuses and things like. So it tends to be that sort of person. But so you they, make it sound quite simple. It is. It is. I think that's fairly simple. Yeah. Uh, I, there may be more to it than that, but it's fair, the principle is fairly simple. Uh, these so these MIT students 
who did this in the late 70s and the 1980s. Um, I think it would be overstating it to say they were geniuses then. So that it's not. It's not. They Rayman. may have been, but that's beside the by. I mean, and this happens in Rain Man. Yeah. Uh, so Rain Man uh, with uh, Dustin Hoffman, uh, who is a savant, autistic, and he was able to card count and, and help Tom Cruise, uh, <laughs> you know, beat the casino. Uh, so there is a difference there. Uh, these these MIT students would do not need to be geniuses to they, do this. They simply need to be able to coordinate their. Uh, coordinate um, signalling to one another what state the deck is in and understand what the probabilities yeah, mean. There is skill in it so but it do doesn't they... take a mathematical genius to do it. So why do they work as a group? Uh, so I think uh, like, like Will was saying it's uh, coordinating what's happening and you're, you're, I guess you're trying to force the, you're maximising your winnings to one of the players. And, so like, and I, ideally I, stop like the that. casino noticing what you're doing because while it may, may not be illegal, they might want you to leave the premises uh, if, they, if they figure out that there's yeah. a team of people working together. So it's, it's not illegal, and it has been ruled that it's not illegal, uh, because you're just playing the game well. And, but the, the, but the, uh, the casinos really don't like it. Well, no one likes them cutting to their profit, no. and it's, a, it's fair land. Yeah, I guess so, I guess so. But I, I feel that's really unfair, because all they're doing is playing the game well. Yeah. And... Um, um, What's wrong with that? As a mathematician, it offends you. It does. It should be fair. It, it, yeah. I, I'm, why can't I use my skills? I, c I have my skills and my talents. Why can't I use them to play this game? Well, you want to stop a football player being too good at football. So why don't you go and play poker? Get other people. Take away the casino. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's so do how, it. how would I win at poker then? How do you win at poker? So there are... Other than by winning. <laughs> there are probabilities uh, that you can learn. Uh, that might help you play poker. Uh, we, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and this might help best of all if you're playing online poker. Yeah. When you take away the, 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 the idea that you're you know, with the person in the other room and you're, there's, there's the psychology of it. Yeah, let's, so let, let's not try and have a genius who also has, understands personality. Just, <laughs> yeah. That, that, yeah, that's, that's a very special genius. Asking too much. Yeah. Right. So if we take that away... Uh, you, there, are, there, are, there are rules and there are tricks uh, and that you can learn the probabilities of, say, seven-card stud uh, to help you make your decisions, to make your choices. Of course, it's probability and, you know, they don't always work, but they'll help you inform your choices. Um, so there are a couple of nice rules of thumb. Uh, so in seven-card stud, uh, you've got the first three, which is the flop. Uh, you've got your fourth card, that, which is the turn card. That's on the table. That is shared by everyone. So you get dealt three cards. You get dealt two cards in your hand. Okay. Everyone has two cards. Okay. On the table, you share five cards. Ah, yeah. First of three are turned over, and then you make your bets. Yeah. Then the fourth one is turned over, and you make your bets again. And then the fifth one is turned over. And you can make your best five-card hand from any of the seven cards that you have available. You've got two in your hand and five that are shared by everyone on the table. It's a great game, full of strategy, fantastic game. Uh, but some, some rules of thumb. Uh, the number, if you're looking for a particular hand to win, maybe a full house, if you're looking for a particular hand and you need a particular card, count the number of cards that you need. They're called outs. So if you're looking for an eight and maybe there's four eights in the deck so you there's four eights in the deck the rule of thumb is on the fourth card times that by four percent and that will give you the probability of getting your out of getting the hand you want so if you're looking for eight and there's four missing you know there's four in the deck you go right, it's four times four percent sixteen percent chance i've got of getting my hand maybe not so good uh if it doesn't happen and you're on the very last fifth card, the river card. Uh, same sort of rule, but it's 2%. Number of outs you're looking for times by 2% is the probability of getting the hand you're after. Uh, so nice rules of thumb. Of course, that doesn't help you with the strategy part of figuring out whether the probability is, is, is going to be wor worth risking at any given time in the game. Yeah, so, and there's more to it. And there's whole books on this, and they're fascinating stuff. I haven't read all of them. But it is fascinating <laughs> stuff. Trying to read every book that's ever written on the subject <laughs> is a way which will send you definitely insane. 
Um, so one thing you mentioned, actually, was the whole savant thing, which I find yeah. really interesting. I mean, are there many real-life mathematical savants out there, people who have just sort of for injury or for due to autism just got this ability? Yeah, so this this exists, uh, the, these mathematical savants, these uh, autistic uh, people who have these uh, amazing calculation skills. Uh, calculation skills may be different from mathematical insight. Uh, mathematics is a creative subject. It is like music and art. There's a lot of similarities in that. So calculation skills is not necessarily the same yeah. as mathematical insight. Uh, but they do exist. Uh, I think an important thing to say is that not all autistic people are savant, uh, but it does exist. Yeah. Uh, so in Rain Man, this is what we had in that film. So from the gifted and trying to bring down the bank, I think we'll move on now to um, some of the maths' greatest questions in history.
So that was This Room by The New Twist. Okay, so we're just saying Mass Greatest Puzzles was a bit probably an overstatement, but one puzzle which I think has really captured people is Fermat's Last Theorem. Yes, absolutely. I don't think it's an overstatement at all. It's been one of the driving forces of mathematics for 400 years. But at the same time, it actually... Has it ever been... Now it has been solved. Does it actually have any use? No, it, it's... Um, I'm afraid not. It's it's one of those lovely results. And you never know. You know, we could find uses for it in the future. Uh, you know, the, the internet today is based on mathematics discovered 300 years ago, where, which we thought we would never have use for. And But uh, as far as we know, uh, it's not... Uh, but what was actually proved in 1994 by Andrew Wiles was not just Fermat's Last Theorem. He actually proved a much more important result, and Fermat's Last Theorem was a consequence of yes, it. Yes, so was this the elliptic curves? Yeah, the elliptic curves um, and oh, things that I don't understand myself, and many mathematicians don't understand, so I, can, I feel like I can say that. I've always been amazed, though, because when he first released it, he had actually made a mistake, hadn't he? Yes, he did. And he fixed it. Yes, he and did. And to me, when I got a mistake in my maths homework, I had to start <laughs> again, you know, it, it just derailed it completely. Yeah, and, but it wasn't easy or obvious thing to do. It took him a year to fix it. I still think it's quite quick for a problem. Yeah, yeah, a problem yeah. <laughs> well, I guess only he could have been deep enough into it to have fixed it that quickly. Uh, he was working with his um, PhD student as well, uh, but it was Andrew Wiles who actually fixed it. Yeah. Um, so I think he was the only one who could have fixed it that quickly because you do go into a internal world of your own. When a mathematician goes into his own internal world, again, like a, a musician would or an artist would, they go into their own creative internal world. And it's that ability to hold so much in your head in one go so you can see it from different yeah. angles is what... Yeah, we, we, we did mention that um, where in films where, they, where they're trying to solve equations and they're having numbers yes. appearing so above like their heads. So like car counting scene in Hangover, statistics appears. Well, they're not statistics, that's what's insane. It's integrals and what I think is unrelated math symbols that some artists are going, ah, oh, they look about right. <laughs> but the funny thing is, this is kind of the same technique that's used in the recent BBC uh, Sherlock um, yes, uh, show guess. where, you know, Sherlock, who is himself this, this, this genius who can apparently solve all these problems completely effortlessly, while he's thinking, you see what he's thinking thinking about popping up around yes. his head but unlike when you know, mathematicians are seen to be to be solving it's not it, the things actually do relate well, to maybe it's justified more in Sherlock because I think he has memory uh, techniques doesn't he yep. and right. he's, he's filed out. all his information in some in his memory palace I remember oh, yeah. in, the, in the series um, uh, I guess mathematicians don't do that uh, and it's a much more nebulous uh, weird place <laughs> that we go to uh, yeah only mathematicians know it's it's a wonderful place I love it I love it but um, it is but it is weirdly um, internal it is odd though because I think I mean I get it because I I'm only did maths to A level and you know, quite a bit of it went along through my chemistry degree but there is something beautiful about solving a maths problem it is a really fun journey and it's mm. I think uh, people who never got past arithmetic really yeah wouldn't I can understand why they don't see it because it is a very different subject and so it's beautiful it really is a beautiful subject yeah so what we do is we do create something new to solve a problem like Fermat's last theorem which has never been solved before and the solution we don't know what the solution is to solve that he had to come up with new original mathematics like coming up with a new song like coming up with a new piece of art he comes up with something new and original that no one else has ever done before. He does that through a creative process. And it's how a, a mathematician can express his creativity. He expresses how clever he is and how, what he can do by the elegance and the beauty of his work. Uh, what I, what, I, what I think is so fascinating about it is that um, in some, and one of the reasons I think it's, it's not seen as such a great achievement as it should be perhaps by some people yeah. is that... Um, Although there is, there is obviously a creative step, but at some level, the result has always been true. It's just yes. that no one has created the, the language or the terminology to express the problem and demonstrate that it is true. So yeah. once it has been shown to be true, it's always been true. And yes. It, yes, so it, it's, so it, in some sense, it, it, it's a discovery, but the process is not the same as discovering something else. You're not mining away at some map. Mm. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it is a discovery. Yeah, it's, is it an invention? Is it discovery? 
you know, is it um, like creating a piece of art? And it's, it's a bit of all of those things, and you have the same feelings as you do when you discover something or create something. It, it's like that. The, 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 the revelation and... Yeah, the sense of the elation, the, the excitement, the, the, your, the proud feelings that you have, and all those things are wonderful, and, and that's what mathematicians feel. That's what people don't appreciate uh, because they think we're perhaps we're robots and, and well, it, we're not at all. It looks very cold. It looks very character. I mean, yeah, literally on the page. But that isn't what it is. And that's what's kind of interesting is because you come up, it's the same with scientists actually have the same problem. But, you know, they reduce things down to rules. Mm -hmm. And some people that takes a beauty out of it. Yeah, well, we do poli we present the, the polished end result. And to bring it back to geniuses, uh, one uh, one real-life genius who could be you know, the basis of all these people we're talking about is Gauss, German, German mathematician. Uh, Gauss um, came from a working-class family. They, his parents were illiterate, uh, but he was a mathematical genius himself. And he's guilty of this because he produced all these results, uh, didn't publish them in a timely manner, which, which held back the progress progress of mathematics by 50 years they say and he, he he only published his polished results not how he got there which would have been much more revealing so i'm afraid that's about all we have time for so th thank thanks james for coming back on the show uh, if you enjoyed this show i'm really happy to say that we now have a podcast containing the first four seasons of the show so if you go to scienceoffiction.co.uk you can subscribe to the podcast and this season if you've missed any of this season we'll be showing up there too as well so you can go back and learn more about enigma machines um also if you were listening to the show before us um michael conterio and others will be on a there'll be a live uh, webcast of um SciCam, um where they're answering questions live on air and the internet if you go to is.gd slash scicamg plus uh, there's more information there um that's all, all from us this week uh thanks again james and see you all next week thank you